Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. I've tried to keep the intros a bit shorter over the last few weeks because I don't know about you. I've noticed that the chatter on podcasts is sort of getting too much, really. So I, I was listening to the first episode of, of one noted series and I think the intro before anything happened was about three minutes long. So I was keen to reduce my own pollution in that regard. After we had Jeffrey Pfeffer on last week, there were a couple of articles that I think backed up the point that Jeffrey was making. There was one great article in the Financial Times by Sarah O'Connor that I thought was brilliant. Sarah says, World Mental Health Day last week brought news of a flurry of employer initiatives to combat stress, anxiety and depression amongst their staff. And then she says, but the subject to corporate wellness trend is troubling. Employers have pulled off a remarkable feat of complacency, assuming they're the solution rather than part of the problem. And I think that was the interesting thing about the Jeffrey Pfeffer thing for me. Increasingly, firms like to present that they're helping to manage people's wellness. They're they're focusing on making people enjoy work better and have a better experience. But in fact, they're directly responsible for it. Probably the best illustration of, of the sort of nonsense that goes on. I remember hearing someone tell me, and I, I might have even mentioned it on a former episode, but I remember someone telling me that they were in a meeting at their company and the meeting leader proposed having a mindful minute at the start of the meeting. The notion of that being that somehow that minute would delete all the stress and harm that was going to happen through the rest of the day. It's such nonsense. There's no evidence for something like that. But it's, it's to some extent, it's harmful. And like Sarah O'Connor says there, firms are increasingly complacent, assuming they're the solution rather than the problem. So rather than trying to, to change the way that work is, trying to reduce the amount of emails, trying to reduce the amount of meetings that people have, they're trying to put a bit of icing on the top and claim that they're making work better. It's dangerous. I love Sarah's article. I've linked to it in the show notes today. It's great to see enlightened people talking about things like that. The more discussion there is on it, the better. There was an article, similar article that I've also added to the show notes by Josh Hall last year, talking about how increasingly, a bit like Jeffrey Pfeffer mentioned, that wellness programmes are becoming compulsory at work, largely because firms like to see themselves as the benefactors, the, the people who are making things better rather than taking any responsibility for the behaviour of managers and the, the way that the workload is growing. Now, today's episode, while I'm away for a week's holiday, is a return to one of my favourite interviews that I've ever done. When I spoke to Dan Cable 12 months ago, he was just building up to the publication of his book, Alive at Work. The book came out in spring this year. So this is the, the first time that people have been able to, to hear the podcast and immediately buy the book. I adored this book. It's one of the most remarkable reminders of when we're best at our jobs. 
we're best at our jobs when we're stimulated, inspired, when we've got a sense that we're we're pursuing something that keenly interests us. You know, as Sophie Scott said in one of the other episodes, we're novelty seeking machines. We're designed to to seek out and relish the new. And I think that's what comes across loud and clear in Dan Cable's book, Alive at Work. I adored my chat with Dan. I went down to London Business School and, and met him about 12 months ago now. Here's today's interview. This is Dan Cable. And he's talking about his wonderful book, Alive at Work. Dan, a lot of your discussion seems to be about the intersection of work and emotion. And you talk about great companies creating a feeling where, where workers strive to achieve more at work, to, to accomplish more. How do companies do this and what's the impact? Yeah. Okay. So in terms of the impact, what I really like thinking about here is what do people bring to work? And so I think that if we very quickly talk about lots of people just show up, you could say they bring their hands. Other people are thinking about how to do old things in new ways. They're trying to be innovative or creative, bring their head to work. And then the hardest might be to get people to bring their heart to work so that it's not just a profession, something they do because they're knowledgeable and expert, but that it's also something that they love or that they want to put themselves into, that they care about. And so that idea about leaders creating an organization where, on average, people are bringing all of themselves to work, I think that's really interesting. Um, And we can talk more about the ways that leaders seem to achieve that. But your second, and maybe even the point of your question, is what gets created? And so if we think from an organizational perspective, if employees are showing up and bringing their hands in, they're sort of listening and waiting for a script. And that puts an enormous influence on what the leaders have to think up. It means that the leaders have to come up with the game plan again and again and again. Each time the organization needs to change, the onus is on leaders to first sort it all out and then teach people. I think that when people are starting to bring their brains to work and want to innovate and try new things, it starts to mean that creativity and innovation are organic and emergent rather than people sort of waiting for the answer and then judging it. So one of the most important things from bringing your head to work would be um, innovation and creativity that the leaders get to experience and watch, but not dream up and teach. And then in terms of um, bringing heart to work, emotions, I think there's two really important bits here. One is um, so many organizations are trying to create emotional connections with the client, with the customer. And that's really difficult to do if the employees themselves are not feeling it. So to plug emotions into a conversation or a sales call, to think hard about creating a relationship and not just a pitch, that often demands emotional labor. That demands employees bring their emotions to work and care if they're to be seen as authentic. That's one thing. Second thing that we've really learned a lot about lately is in order to try new things at work, there has to be some emotion that people are willing to put themselves out there and take risks. They're willing to be energized enough to try something that might not work. And a lot of times that is not something they're willing to do unless they're feeling that it's important. 
And tell me this then. So, like, you know, it's, there's a couple of things I wanted to, to call out there. So one of the things when I saw you talking was a Gallup survey you, you gave reference to, which was 78% of people say that they are an adapted version of themselves. Or, or uh, The wording was they go to work to shut off, which is a depressing set of words, isn't it? And so that links into what you said there, people bringing their full emotional self to, to work. I was chatting to someone about your work, and they said... But any firm that's fired someone, the risk of exposing your vulnerabilities, the risk of exposing your true yes, self, leaves, leaves you exposed right. to right. works exploitation. And how do you reconcile those? That was things? such a good topic. In terms of the statistics, it's funny. After we did that, and I got your note here, I went and looked. And where I originally got that 78%, it's actually 80%. The Gallup Institute looked at 1.7 million employees, 63 countries, and 101 companies. And they found that 80% of the people said that they could not be their best at work. It's a very strong um, finding. It means that on average, work is a place where people feel they have to hide bits of themselves that they think are actually their best bits. And that means that they're wearing a sort of a mask. And you've really put your finger on the issue, which is for a lot of people, in order to be my best at work, I would have to do it differently than you told me to do it. And this takes me to the idea through not really evil, but through efficiency. The Industrial Revolution was about standardization and making jobs not only simple, but very replicable meaning that if I lose you in this job I can easily hire and find somebody else cog in a machine thinking this new approach is to say we have to let people personalize work we would have to let them take the job then bring their unique strengths to it to light it up as it were using the way that they could do it best and that I think is where your your exact comment is it, it's it's catching me because if we keep an industrial, uh, <laughs> sort of a mechanized model of what humans do, there's not really room for individuality. And playing to your strengths means that you're going to do it differently than me. That might mean that I got to judge you differently than you judge me. It might mean the metrics for you might be the metrics that are different for me. So now when I start hearing about the likes of Accenture or Deloitte, or I just learned today, Amazon, moving away from these forced ranking systems. One of the reasons why they're saying they're doing that is to allow more personalization of how people do their work, allowing more job crafting and playing to strengths. So maybe we're even seeing the beginning of some trends, but those trends are, I think, seriously questioning this standardization model that sort of came out of the 1900s. The bit I get from reading your work, and, and so you, you talk a lot about seeking systems, which might be uh, worth you explaining. But the bit I get about your work, then if I overlay what you said there, is that that um, notion of not bringing your full self to work is something that you could probably accommodate in a clerical routine job. But not bringing your full self to work is something that is very difficult to accommodate in a world where creativity, ideas and invention are, are the, the core principles that you've got. And 
as work migrates away from these jobs that the robots are coming after into things that are far more unique and creatively focused, this seems to be a critical thing that all work needs to get ready for then. Right. What you just put your finger on is why now? Why are these positive emotions at work so important now? Why haven't we caught on to this in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s? And there's something really interesting about pace and speed of change. Not very long ago, 1987 for me, I came out with an undergraduate degree. By 1995, I had a PhD. And through that whole time, the way people talked and thought about organizational change is that the leaders thought that up and then cascaded it throughout that you created a burning platform and then tried to get people to accept the change, even though they would resist. And this new approach of saying, we don't have two years to create a change. We can't do an 18 month rollout. In 18 months, the world's gonna have changed two more times. It puts a very strong demand on getting these volunteer changes to emerge organically. And I think that this is enormously hopeful Humanistically, it's very hopeful to me because it implies strongly that organizations that are using fear and then teaching scripts won't be adept. They won't adapt. They won't be seen as relevant. And organizations that invite people to bring their whole selves to work, that invest in their best selves, will not only survive, will be more likely to thrive. And so for me, why now is enormously hopeful and i think that it won't be all leaders that accept that approach i personally had a hard time with this even as an american when in what sense it's not the way i was taught it's not the way my teeth were cut it's not the assumption base in which i operated and for somebody that's always been taught smart objectives, goal setting around the organizational goals, cascading objectives starting from the top, 18 to 24 month rollouts, it is somewhat, it was somewhat, I'm fully on board now, but it was somewhat interesting how much I had to get my head around this new approach that the leader doesn't have to have all the answers. They have to engage people to want to find the answers. You have to give up quite a bit of your certainty and become considerably more vulnerable. Could you talk through then the fear system and the, the seeking system? Because it underpins a lot of the insight that I think you've shared. Sure, sure. The fear system is a good place to start because I think everybody knows about that one. There is a part of our brain dedicated to injecting cortisol into us when we experience a shock that is threatening. And so the feeling that people report, that sort of jumpy, anxious, uh, fearful state, comes along with not only some drugs that get jetted into our bloodstreams, but also some tendencies of how we should respond. Uh, and we don't get to control those tendencies. <laughs> they were helpful to our ancestors, so we got them now. So the eyes dilate to let in more information. We flinch and pull back. Our body wraps our muscles tighter as we get ready to either fight or flee. And so we don't get control over that. That's an unconscious reaction to fear. And when organizations create that, that means that the fear is coming from within the group. And the action that our body wants to take, when that fear hits from within the group, the threat comes from those around us, uh, what we want to do is conform. 
We want to fit in. We want to hide our uniqueness. So unfortunately, that used to be good for Henry Ford. That's not so good for organizations that want people to be innovative and creative. So now let's flip it. Um, fortunately, for all of time, we have a different part of our brain that uses a different drug. Uh, it's not as strong as the, as the uh, fear system, and that's something that's really powerful. Fear has to be quicker. Seeking system takes longer. But the seeking system uses dopamine, and what it's interested in doing is causing us to explore and play. So when we're not afraid, there's something in us that urges us to think about new ways to get resources. Our ancestors needed to gather resources even when they had a cave and food. They were seeking, thinking about other ways to get resources. They were pushing us out of Africa onto other continents to try to see what's out there. And that's existed for all of time. So that part of us is deeply resonant. But as long as we're feeling fear, we don't give it a chance to emerge. So the part of me that is so hopeful is that the current system of how do we activate playful behavior at work? How do we activate creativity and innovation of new ways to do old things? demands the dopamine, the enthusiasm. It demands that curiosity. But leaders don't always have the right practices to activate. And that's when I say I'm hopeful. That's why I'm hopeful. It's putting the onus now on leaders to say, how do I get that state? How do I reduce fear and increase curiosity? The one thing I found especially interesting, but you talked about the fear system. There was this example of rats in a cage. And if a bit of cat fur was put into the rats... So rats, you taught me, are immensely playful animals. They love playing. But as soon as a bit of cat fur is in their cage, they they go into this, this fear state. That Actually, they find it pretty impossible to emerge from. It, it sort of permeates their behaviour, even when time passes. And for me, there's an interesting parallel there because a lot of us or a lot of organisations do flit into fear mode. They, they, do, they do say, now's, now's code red. Now's the time that you guys need to be focusing on this. And that, for me, is something that a business might enter into lightly, but the consequence might be these enduring abiding memories in people's heads. And I wonder how you can think about that. That's fabulous. The analogy as you were talking that I got was my back and how when it gets a little bit threatened, let's say by too much tennis serving, it seizes up. It literally clasps my spinal cord so hard that I fall and crumple. And it's trying to protect me. It thinks it's doing the right thing for me. And this is what I think will happen in a lot of organizations. They're fine to do a bit of play, as long as there's plenty of resources, that there's slack in the environment, as long as we're just proactively fooling around. But when the industry has shifted and we need to catch up, or when the profits slip a little bit, if all of a sudden that little R&D doesn't pay off immediately, how do we react and what tightens up? It's clear that there's no more important time to have creativity in play is when we need to change. But unfortunately, 
when we need to change might make organizations spasm and go strictly into fear state. Now, let me tell you this. That will work as long as the people already know the right behaviors. Again, it'll focus them on the threat and it'll make them conform to the rules of what we should be doing. That's great if you have the right rules. Unfortunately, what organizational change often means is we don't know. We need to figure it out. We need to be curious. We need to be creative. So right there is the rub. There's no more important time to stimulate the dopamine in the seeking system than when we don't know the right answer. So that's fascinating. Mm. That's really, it's, it's, it's a paradox that I think will put a lot of businesses out of business. Yeah, because you, if you play through that scenario, that time when you're really underperforming, in trouble, people are scrutinizing you, you know, Laps in the hostile shareholder position, yeah. at that time you're saying to people, now's the time to start experimenting, having ideas, it's over to you, it's sort of this servant leadership, it's over to you. Yeah, it's a, it's... It's a really nice illustration right there. And because I had one of these seize up uh, opportunities recently, you just find it so interesting how the body thinks it's doing it to help you. And in this case, it simply is not helpful. One other thing I'll put out there that I find interesting, the fear state wasn't meant to be switched on all the time. You know, our ancestors wouldn't have lived in constant fear. There would have been the occasional bear or threat. But the idea that in many organizations, day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, it's a cesspool of fear. It's, it's roiling with anxiety. That's where the burnout happens. Mm. Okay. It's not the quick reaction that's run. It's the, let me enter into another 9, 10, 12 hours of fear today so that I can do it again tomorrow. My life. <laughs> <laughs> Have I depressed us enough? <laughs> let's, let's talk about purpose because one of the things that, look, I mean, more and more businesses now are trying to reach for purpose because I think I think because they can see in certain instances it seems to be this incredibly energizing corporate behavior you've done a lot of work on this trying to find out when purpose works and when purpose doesn't work and it's an interesting thing isn't it purpose purpose is a, a bit like humor in the sense that a very small difference a very small nuance can turn it from being That's nice sincere to being really horrible and saccharine and there's examples that I think you've got where people have found purpose inauthentic and what was I was particularly interested in is you seem to have come across the way that you can make purpose I sure hope so I think one of the most interesting case studies with some really solid data is Adam Grant did a study where he took fundraisers who were just making calls for money. They were making calls for a university. And in one set of the fundraisers, he did an experiment where he simply brought in one of the recipients of that money, a scholarship student. And they sat down with them and basically said thank you. Said thank you for doing what you do. I couldn't afford school without you. And he found enormous increases in terms of how many calls and how much money. You know, threefold kind of responses. 
And it was a really brief interaction. Wasn't oh my it? gosh! It was it was yeah, minutes. ten minutes. Yes, yeah. it's an incredible thing. So then, you know, one of the supervisors said, "But you know, that's kind of my job. It's what I do. We don't really need to bring in the scholarship students." So they reran a study, whole different set of call centers, whole different set of you know, fundraisers. Where in this one, they again did the student one. The student came in and said thank you. But in another one, the boss came in and said the same thing, mind you. He said, thank you, and let's remember why we're doing this. It's to put kids in school. It just didn't work as well. It got you know, 6% increase, not even statistically significant, whereas they replicated the first result you know, over three times um, more calls, almost six times more money. And this really got me thinking. It, it really helped me to start understanding that purpose isn't about what the boss says it is that somehow that could even create a bit of cynicism because maybe people feel a little exploited maybe purpose is the last frontier it's something that's truly personal and you don't get to tell me my purpose and i find it really interesting to think about personalizing purpose not by the leader saying here's what it is you've got to internalize it and certainly not by a firm putting it on the website or creating a laminated card that you have to wear around your neck you know, almost certainly that won't be received in somebody's heart as my purpose mm -hmm. but interesting how if a leader would start with the goal of how can i invest in them personalizing purpose how can i get them closer to the end user of what they do all day long and in study after study, and in example after example, that's what I'm seeing working. I'm seeing that when you can look or talk to the person that is using the product and have them say, thank you, here's why it's so good when you do what you do well, here's why it hurts when you don't do it well. That's emotional and not cognitive. That's Gratitude is an emotion that we have felt and have been evolved to feel. And when you feel gratitude, it makes you want to give back. It creates a more honest exchange. It creates trust. It's just very interesting to me how the switch can be thrown, but maybe not in such a mercenary way. Hmm. And I have a feeling that when leaders hear that employees want to know about purpose, they think their job is to cook it up for them. And I believe what we're stumbling on is it takes a bit more of an investment than that. It, create, it, it takes creating a personalized experience where firsthand they witness the end user experiencing their product. Yeah. So there's something about that that's hopeful to me as well. Again, I might just be the eternal optimist, and that's okay too. But what inspires hope in me is how that's more how we're built. Yeah, and, and just for, fascinating for me. It feels a bit like, and this might feel like I've, I've turned this into a lower level of academia. No, no. But it feels like when you... You've, you must be familiar with Robert Cialdini's influence and, like, sure. and those, those behavioural triggers and 
you know, the, the things he studies at great length about the bath towels, the, the reuse of bath towels. And, and sometimes semantics can play a big part, words and wording. And yours seem, your work there seems really similar in the sense that you're learning, you, by understanding the cognitive paths that work in people's minds, you're finding a better way to connect with them in things that are, you know, are heartfelt and meaningful. Yeah, that's just, um, wow. There's a lot that you said there. Number one, it's that the, the triggers are subtle. If you didn't know to look for these differences, you might not even see that they're there. It could even be that one of the leaders listening to this, if he or she just glanced away for a moment and their mind just didn't hear the bit about personalizing, yeah, 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 I know purpose is important. I got that. That's why we have it on the website. You know, that's, that's why we tell every new applicant about it. You know, that, it. It's quite subtle what we're saying here. It's, it's let's find a way to feel it firsthand. That's interesting to me. So, so the other thing I wanted to cover was uh, we, we talked a little bit at the start about the whole self. And, and I, I guess, you know, and it, it's, it was really interesting, but I saw that in your work. Because I've always thought if you can bring your unadapted self to work and it, you can be the same person in every context, that seems to be a route to happiness. And so consequently, mm-hmm. if, if work can facilitate that, then happiness at work, which is sort of my obsession, can be more easily accomplished. And... Through your work, you found really simple, I think these days people would style them as hacks, for companies to encourage people to bring them their real selves to work. And it's very much it's simple things uh, about the onboarding process, about people starting work. Do you want to just sort of talk through the things that you sure. found there? Sure. Uh, I think there's three things I'd like to say. Um, the first one, uh, and you know, you could call it a hack um, that can come off as pejorative, but if you just think of it as a way forward, a little bit unexpected way forward, I think it kind of works actually. But one um, study that we did with Wipro in India was they were hiring newcomers, and we just, for one group, randomly assigned them to a condition where the very first hour, the very first day, Uh, A leader said, rather than start with the job, we want to start with you. We want you to write down three times that you've been your very best. One of you had your best impact on other people. And essentially, it was a way of getting them to create a a sort of um, a highlights reel. A personal highlights reel. Not that you always act this well. Not that you always have this impact. But sometimes... You just up your game for whatever reason. We want you to write about that. And gave them 20 minutes. And then they went off and they introduced their best selves to each other. They'd never met before. So in this fairly uncertain new environment of a brand new job, meeting these people they'd never met before, they were just asked to introduce your best self and maybe read one of those stories. And we found that six months later, they were 57% less likely to quit. And they were making customers 11% happier, statistically significant. We were really surprised by that because we didn't spend any money. And it's just, there's a lot that it could be doing. So we went back to Harvard and we replicated that with a bunch of data entry people in Boston. And we found that not only did it work again, they made fewer errors, more likely to come back to work and so on. But we also measured why. And the strongest reason why is they felt that other people at work knew who they really were. They felt that they could self-express, that people knew their real strengths. It was, that, that carried the variance, as it were. 
So that's one. Second thing that I bring up is we've now worked with a bunch of different companies and a bunch of different studies where we put that on steroids by going out to people's social networks. So we'll go out to a person's parents, um, siblings, college buddies, high school buddies, um, old bosses, old professors. Uh, and we have those people be a looking glass back and say, here's where we saw that person at their best. They write stories saying, here's where that person had their biggest influence on me. And we bundle those and we give them to them. And um, it really seems to affect people. It seems to make that best self more salient. It seems to ignite the seeking system. It releases the dopamine. It makes people more creative. It makes them more innovative. It makes them more resilient to stress and strain. It makes them less likely to burn out. It's an interesting and powerful, if you will, hack. And again, it doesn't really cost much money. It's just we don't do it in the world until people die. And then we call that a eulogy. And it's a really strong, interesting hack, if you will, to give people a eulogy when they're still alive and say, hey, why don't you use that here? If those are strengths that are natural and innate to you, and it's you at your best, you probably want to be that more often, don't you? Here's the job that could be a platform for you to be your best. That's much less of a hack and more of a revolution, of course. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Eat Sleep Work with Pete is brought to you by The Joy of Work, the new book by me, Bruce Daisley, available now on pre-order. If you're interested in improving the way that work feels to you, then The Joy of Work is a fabulous selection of 30 improvements that anyone can make to our jobs. 12 top tips to help us feel more recharged, improve our energy, 8 suggestions of how to build sync in your team, how to build this magical energy that seems to exist and scientists are able to measure when humans seem to be working in close synchrony with each other. Finally, how can you build a buzz, which is a combination of psychological safety and positive effect? How can you build a buzz state in your team? 
all underpinned by science. The Joy of Work is available for pre-order. Why not treat yourself? Order The Joy of Work. The price just went down on Amazon this week. Order it today. It'll arrive fresh for Blue Monday in January. Joy of Work by Bruce Daisley, available now. I was, I was really struck because that has resonance in, there's a book about the method cleaning company called, called The Method Method. And they have mm. something which is one of their core values, which is keep method weird. And it's all about celebrating eccentricities. Mm. It's about celebrating the things that aren't particularly normal. Yes. And it re- immediately yes. connected. And so this place, wow. which has been celebrated for a great culture, wow. it immediately connected. Zappos.com? Mm. Let's keep it a little weird around here. Southwest Air. We want you to bring all of yourself to work, even the weird bits. So one of my books is called Change to Strange, and I'm a big fan of strange. It feels to me the last thing we'd want to be is normal, which sounds a lot like average. And if you want to be extraordinary, if you want to bring something that makes people say, wow, uh, it's got to be abnormal. It's got to be strange. It can't just fit in. So I actually think that we're probably on to something not only interesting, but truthful here. Great organizations probably don't race to the middle. They probably race to eccentricity, if you will. So that's a nice catch. Mm-hmm. Even as I'm walking you through this and I'm talking myself through this, I find there to be more mystery here than answers. Why is purpose so powerful? Mm. How do we trigger purpose that's authentic? These are big questions. These are humanistic questions. They're not one where there's the sort of tick box. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, the interesting challenge is, can you scale purpose mm. based on what you said there? Mm. So, you know, mm. all very well that when you've got 20 people in a garage doing something and you can feel connected to what you're doing. But can you scale it to mm. 10,000 people globally? That's it. In, in an authentic Fabulous. way? Fabulous. So if we had named this book, I think we could name it Beta Testing the Super Firm. It feels very much to me like around the 1890s, we invented this new thing, which is not six people making shoes in a little village shop, but 64,000 called Nike. And how is it that we can, as leaders, make it feel as salient and tangible what we're giving to people and who we're affecting when most of the people who work there have tiny jobs that they didn't really invent? They, They might order the mesh for the running shoe line, that they didn't design the shoe, they don't talk to the customers who wear the shoe, they don't pick the color of the mesh, they're just trying to get the lowest price. Or maybe they, they post the pictures online for the new shoes, but they don't take the pictures, and they don't decide what the lines of shoes are going to be, they just post them. And to think about bringing a sense of purpose to that is... Um, We're beta testing that concept, and I think we have a lot of evidence that it doesn't often work. But then in some firms, there's hints and suggestions that you can get legions of volunteers to say, oh, I want to be working on that. So that's what we're up against. We're Mm. trying to crack that code. 
Thanks to Dan. Like I say, that book is available now. I've got some fabulous stuff coming up over the next few weeks when I'm back from holiday. So next week we've got Teresa Amabley, and Teresa is probably one of my favourite ever psychologists. As I said to her in the new book that I've got coming up, The Joy of Work, out January 24th, uh, as I said to her, she's the most cited scientist in it. So she's actually a chemist turned psychologist turned business school professor. So I know we, we talk about people being pluralist, but I think she's uh, she's got plenty of, of expertise that she can teach us. After Teresa Amable, we've got Seth Godin, who's going to be teaching us how to create our, a new culture in our workplaces using tricks of marketing to do that. Then we've got Adam Kay, who's written the best-selling and most entertaining book of the year, uh, This Is Going To Hurt, which is the, the memoirs of a one-time NHS surgeon and, and junior doctor, which is a joyful and at times depressing book. And we're going to be talking about the the culture in the NHS. Some fabulous stuff coming up. All of the episodes are available on the website. That's eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. Like I say, you can follow us on Twitter to see the latest news at any time. See you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.